Our guest today is Chris Williams, principal of Fairway Transitions, a hybrid search model in Northern California. Chris graduated from Brown University and began his career in investment banking at Barclays in New York before joining the PE firm TPG as an associate in their San Francisco office on their real estate team. He earned his MBA from Stanford, and this past year, Chris launched Fairway Transitions to find, acquire, and run a lower middle market business for decades to come. I've been fortunate to have had several conversations with Chris over the last few months, and he's one of those people that I would buy stock in if I could. Based on his optimistic outlook and track record to date, there's no doubt he'll be extremely successful in his future endeavors, and I look forward to following along in his journey. Chris, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the Circle of Confidence. Awesome. Victor, Benton, thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate the invite, Victor. It's been fun getting to know you a little bit over the last year, and I, I'd say... Um, Look, based on a lot of the other guests you have, I'm, I'm light on the accomplishments and look forward to hopefully, you know, in 10 years, having some of the accomplishments that your other guests have, have executed uh, on, on my end as well. But I appreciate being here. Likewise, I, I, man. I, I got to live up to the, uh, to, the, to the expectations that your other guests have set out there. <laughs> uh, no worries. And I, and I don't doubt that you will. Um, but the feeling is mutual and, and I've enjoyed getting to know you as well. Um, I... There's a lot of different reasons I wanted to have you on this episode. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's just that, you know, we're really interested in entrepreneurship and investing. And, and when you think about entrepreneurship, there's kind of two ways to be an entrepreneur. There's buying a business or building a business from scratch. And when you look at the buying side of that equation, um, search and, and searching for a business is like the most popular, most common way to, to do that. And so, you know, you're someone that I look to as knowing a lot about the different um, options for search and someone that's in the middle of doing it. Uh, so I think this will be really interesting. But before we jump into um, like an overview of search, uh, given that you're in the middle of everything right now, I'd love to know just how are you doing today? Yeah, um, today I am, I think like every day in search a little bit, uh, there's mixed emotions, mixed thoughts that you have, you know, I actually just got off a call. So the context right now, I am spending most of my time working on a transaction. And honestly, that's the much more exciting part of search than the, you know, peer process where you're much more on the sourcing end, where you're putting together lists of companies or taking quick looks at, you know, a deal from a broker, like when you've actually got quote unquote, a fish on the hook, uh, you know, a business that hopefully I'm acquiring in the next two, three, four months, you start to envision yourself in the seat. So that's more exciting. Uh, you know, so that's the, the good part of the mind. And then I just got off a call with somebody right now, though, and we were talking about the business. He's in the industry. And he was like, look, man, I think you're overpaying by 20, 30%. And so that's a little bit of the deflator. And I, I think that's um, pretty indicative of what every day in search can be is there's, there's highs, there's things you hear or things that will happen that are deflating. And the reality is like you end up hearing or, you know, things from a ton of different people during your search and everybody has different opinions. There's never a deal or a seller or, you know, a phone call that's perfect. And in my mind, that's one thing I'm really learning, which is like, you got to process all that information for yourself and you got to make the decision yourself ultimately. And like, I've got more data on this business than that guy who just told me it was 20 to 30% overpriced, but he's also in the industry. So maybe it is overpriced and like, what am I going to do with that information? And at the end of the day, that's kind of the whole 
I, I don't like to call myself or consider myself quote unquote, a big entrepreneur, but that is the entrepreneurial aspect here, which is like, we're, we're making decisions for ourselves at the end of the day. And, um, so that was a little bit of a long answer to how I'm doing today, but just kind of that's sort of day in the life example in real time. No, it was a great answer and, and super insightful. I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into the uh, yeah, potential yeah. acquisition uh, yeah. later on in the conversation. I think just to back it up a little bit now, um, yep. would love to uh, give the listeners an overview of kind of your background and, and your interest in search and where that came from. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I have a pretty uh, traditional background to, I would say at least to the traditional funded search ecosystem, which is... I went to undergrad, I studied applied math in undergrad, I spent a year at a law firm, thought I wanted to be a lawyer, didn't love that experience because I felt like, candidly, I like the quantitative side of my brain more than the, the reading side of the brain, which is what I think a lot of junior legal work is. So that quickly led, you know, quickly led me to, towards investment banking, very popular path coming out of college. They've got a really powerful recruiting machine, you know, and, and they, they do a good job. and, and so I went down that path quickly from there, decided uh, I wanted to get more on the action side of things and, you know, actually producing results. And that often is you know, the direct investing relative to the financial advisory, which is what investment banking is at its core. And so I went down the private equity path. And then basically I, I had a decision after three years in PE of like, hey, do I want to stay and keep doing this? Or do I want to try to go to business school? And it really came down to two things for me, which was, you know, I didn't have full conviction of what I wanted to do with my career. So I thought it would be really powerful to go to business school and see a ton of different options. And maybe I would come back to private equity or maybe I would find something much more compelling and could, you know, that's where I am now. Um, but also I think there's a lot of good personal learning I, I did at business school and I thought going through the application process that I would benefit from that. And I think that was the result. So that was sort of what took me to business school. I'd never heard of search funds until I got to business school at Stanford. They're, you know, really popular, maybe just behind sort of doing a sexy Silicon Valley startup in terms of things that get attention on campus. Maybe that's a bit overstated. Maybe they're popular in my ecosystem, but um, I came to business school with an eye towards operating because when I got most energized in my PE job was the few times here or there where I sort of spent time inside a portfolio company. Um, and so I, I came in knowing I was going to focus on what are opportunities for me to get into operating a business, not just investing in them. And so when I discovered search, it pretty quickly resonated with me from the opportunity to be on the ground in the weeds of, of, of a business really, really quickly at a leadership role. And I basically spent my whole two years at Stanford from a career perspective, exploring search. I interned at a search acquired business during my summer and then spent second year um, trying to figure out what was the right way for me to go execute in a search ecosystem. So you got to Stanford and you kind of found out about this uh, career path of search. Yep. Um, there's obviously a few different ways to uh, peel the onion there or skin the cat, if you will, um, yep. with search. So uh, let, let's talk through what those different options are and, uh, and then we'll work, we'll, excuse me, we'll work our way down to uh, the model that you ultimately decided to go with. 
Yeah. And, and this is one thing I feel uh, pretty strongly about is that like anybody thinking about search, depending on, on where you're coming from, like one path may be dominant in your ecosystem. So like, for example, coming out of Stanford, the traditional search fund path, which I'll get into is, is the predominant choice. Uh, you know, if you're sort of currently working in a business, it, it might be most people you see searching are doing self-funded. And I think no matter where you sit, it's important to really spend time looking at all the different options and talk to people in all the different paths, because that way you can sort of come to a better decision of what's the right one for you. And that's ultimately the, the, the conclusion I've come to is like, look, there's pros and cons to every path and we'll, we'll talk about them. Some people will argue certain paths are better than the other, but I think at the end of the day, it's about what's the right thing for you and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, but in, in terms of the different paths within search, I think the there's probably like, there's a bit of a decision tree uh, and then there's multiple paths within each of those decision trees. So I think the first decision is how are you going to fund yourself during the search period? Are you going to self fund, which means drain your savings account, or maybe you have a spouse or somebody else who can sort of help keep the lights on for you, not in an investor capacity, or are you going to raise investor capital, whether it's from one person, whether it's from a group, whether it's from uh, a search fund accelerator, which we can get into, but that to me is sort of the first decision. And then from there, you have under the, hey, I'm going to take capital from an investor to help me fund my search. There's a decision of sort of what type of investor do you work with in that structure. Um, so that's kind of how I would, I would map it, which is how are you going to fund yourself and then different structures within those two funding concepts. Yeah. So let's, let's dig in there. Um, yep. Before we talk about uh, the different ways that you might be able to do a funded search, whether it's um, through like family money or um, raising from a group of investors or doing a search fund accelerator, let's look at the self-funded route. Yep. Um, who, who, what, what might be the, like the pro the major pros and cons of the self-funded route? Um, yep. Yeah. Let's start there. Yeah. So I, I would say the pros are you have, the most flexibility in terms of what you can buy. Um, and you also generally are going to see more ownership in the business once you acquire it. And the reason for that is you are, you know, at its core looking for a business kind of the most on your own, and then you're going to raise the capital to acquire that business. Once you found the business, you start talking to investors, before you get it under LOI, but once it feels pretty real, but you know, you can sort of design the investors based on the business that you have. And, and therefore there is more flexibility in what you can acquire because, you know, you can basically start from the entire universe of potential investors and go find the ones who are interested in this type of business model. And that can be search fund investors, or it could just be like, you know, rich guys or gals, you know, through your network who maybe aren't even approaching it from a search investor ecosystem For, on the con side, the cash constraint thing, which is very, very real is, you know, if you don't have a way to pay your rent and pay living expenses and 
start to spend some diligence money, that obviously becomes an issue. I think you, depending on how you structure your search, you might have sort of fewer advisors around you or uh, mentors to help you through the process. I, I think that is something you hear in the ecosystem, but I, I don't necessarily think it plays out that way. Like if you do a good job of building relationships with whether they're search fund investors or just business operators, you can have people in your camp in the search, in the self-funded path and just as strong of an advisory capacity as you might in the traditional path. I do think when you're self-funded, another con is to some extent outside accountability. You know, you haven't taken other people's money. You haven't necessarily committed to a full two years of doing this. And I do think while you know, I'm incredibly self-motivated, most people doing this are very self-motivated. There is a little bit of a difference, which is like tomorrow I could go get a job if I wanted to. And somebody who's raised money is sort of more pot committed for that two year process. And, and I think that is uh, a con. And then the last thing is that oftentimes in the self-funded world, you're going to take financing from the SBA seven program, which comes with a personal guarantee. And basically that means, you know, if the business goes bankrupt, either you have assets and you're going to have to give those to the bank. I don't have any assets. So it means I would go through personal bankruptcy, which is not, you know, it, it's not going to put you in jail, but it's also something that impacts your life significantly going forward. So that you don't usually take on a personal guarantee in a traditionally funded deal. And taking that on certainly ups the risk in the self-funded ecosystem. So there's kind of um, in the self-funded world, there's self-funded search and then yep. a funded acquisition. And then there's self-funded search, self-funded acquisition. Yeah. And I think um, basically all that comes down to is what ownership are you going to have in the business going forward? So like, I'm not going to be able to acquire a business with my own money. So I have to raise outside capital and, you know, for every dollar of, of money I raise outside me, that means ownership of the business that I give to those investors in exchange for that money. Um, that I think is the biggest distinction of what you said there. You know, one thing I would say is that I think like on Twitter and self-funded acquisition, you know, there's, a, there's often this expectation of like, the self-funded entrepreneur is trying to own as much of the business as possible, or, you know, you, you have to go the SBA route. And what I would say is like, if I had happened to find a $3 million EBITDA business that was going to trade for eight times and look very much like a traditional search fund deal, my economics would, would look like a traditional self-fund deal. And I'd be totally fine with that because I'd be really excited about that business or if you find a much smaller business, then maybe you end up closer to the self-funded outcome, which is the searcher can own 60, 70, 80% of the business, depending on the size. Um, but I'm, I'm not thinking I'm going to do a, a, an acquisition where I will be able to do all the capital myself. I just don't have that kind of money. Yeah. Um, what's, what's like the typical, um, you know, doing a self-funded search and then, and then raising capital to do the actual acquisition. What's like the typical funding structure um, or capital structure once you find a business? Yep. So, so basically it's, um, 
I would say 70 to 80, 85% of the deal is funded with an SBA loan. You know, you can get more aggressive than that. You can get 90% SBA loan. You can even get uh, 95% debt financing if 5% of that comes from a seller note, which doesn't pay any interest while the SBA is outstanding. But from my perspective, like that's where the leverage starts to get really scary. Um, And so, but there, like this is a highly leveraged, if you're using the SBA program buyout structure. And and part of the reason for that is it's a 10 year amortization, sort of five to 6% loan. So even though you're using a lot of leverage, it's not necessarily a ton of cash burden. I mean, it's significant, but it's not, um, it's usually your EBITDA or sort of seller earnings will be 1.5 times, maybe 1.4 if you get aggressive, what your annual interest and principal payment will be to the bank. So you do have a little bit of room. It's not a ton, but you have some. Um, But then I think what you're asking really about is is the equity structure. And usually um, the way you think about it is you're going to raise outside equity. Those investors get a preferred return, usually 8, 10, 12%. You can pay that out on a yearly basis or you can compound it. Maybe you don't actually have to compound it, but it just rolls every year and you're not actually paying it. Like that's negotiation. And then importantly, they get a step up on their percentage of the business that they funded. So let's say you bring in 75% of the business is funded through debt from the SBA and you bring in 25% of the business from outside equity, you would have to give a step up to those investors. So they might own 40% of the business in common equity. So you, you step up, so to speak, their 25% of the purchase price into a higher percentage of common equity ownership. The one piece we haven't talked about here is sometimes there will be a seller note. So the seller will also basically become a mini bank and, and give some additional leverage on top of the SBA. And so, you know, that can reduce the outside equity that you will need to, to raise. And I would say just the way you size the step up on those common equity investors is basically you're building a financial model and based on the business and the growth you think you can achieve, et cetera, et cetera. There's kind of a gross return profile of the business. And then you have to size really that step up to the investors so that they hit their desired returns. Got it. Um, So um, let's say you have like 80% uh, SBA loan. Yep. um, 20% outside capital. So then that that 20%, they're getting a step up. Yep. And, and then how does it work as you, as you pay down debt? Um, Are, are they like, basically like earning more equity the, yes. the outside investors they just they convert to common at your pre-negotiated step up so yeah. they're gonna if it'll say there they were 20 percent, and maybe you negotiated i think the average number i've seen is like 1.7 times in the self-funded sba world so that 20 percent becomes uh whatever 1.7 times 20 20 is call it 35 and that's what they're going to own in common equity. 
And, you know, as the value of the business increases, the dollars of that common equity position that they hold increases, but they're never going to own more than 35% of the common equity. And so like the basic premise is I'm taking the personal guarantee risk and therefore I get most of the value as debt gets paid down. That's where my ownership comes from. Right, right on. Um, so uh, before we get to uh, what we're getting close to talking about, which is your model, yeah. let's circle back to the other, uh, you know, high level model, which is raising capital yeah. uh, for the search. So um, I think first, I kind of want to hear about that search fund accelerator, just because I, I don't really know anything about that. So would you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, sim it's similar to other accelerator models out there, like venture models, et cetera. And there's, I think, two that I know of. Search Fund Accelerator is the original, and they're based in Boston, and I want to say also New Orleans. And then there's one based in Chicago. I think it's called Next Gen Growth Partners. And the basic premise there is, like, they bring in a cohort of searchers every year. It's usually, I think, in the two to five or six. Um, they've already got, you know, your email set up, your you know, you, you come up with a name for your fund, but they sort of help streamline the, the back office and the tech stack, tech stack set up every year. You know, they, they have a bulk subscription to some of these business databases. So they shorten that time period that every searcher spends kind of getting up to speed. And then they obviously, just like traditional search fund investors, you know, they're in the ecosystem and are, helping you think about what are the right industries to look at, helping you to think about a deal you might be working on, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's where they, they become sort of your advisors. And they, candidly, I don't know a ton of detail about the accelerators, but I think they're, you know, there's three or four sort of C-level type principles at those firms who are kind of become your mentors, your advisors during the search they, I think, have raised their own funds from LPs. So that's where their capital comes from. And, you know, you have, I think the advantages are you have sort of all the processes they've helped streamline. And also you have a cohort of people kind of who are in the seat next to you, maybe literally, probably not anymore post-COVID, but, you know, searchers that are, you're kind of on the same team with. I don't, I don't know how they work with like, sharing deals between each other if searchers there ever feel like they're stepping on each other's toes. But I, I do think um, there's probably more of a group concerted effort. And I think that can be powerful because I know one of the downsides in, in search in general is like, Hey, I might find a deal that doesn't work for me because geography, but maybe you're looking in you know, North Carolina and like, if I know you're looking in North Carolina, I know you're there, maybe I'll send it to you. But if I don't know you or I don't know you're out, like that deal doesn't go anywhere. And so I think when you have searchers under the same roof, perhaps there's a little, perhaps there's a little bit more sharing. And I think that's a, a miss in the general ecosystem right now, which is like people just, it's really hard from an incentives, et cetera, et cetera, to have any deals passing on between each other, but there's an opportunity. So that's the basic uh, accelerator model. I think the downside is, you know, you basically work for a firm or a group of investors who are those C-level people I described. And that just means there's a little bit of single or several people decision maker risk. Like if the accelerator does decides it doesn't want to do your deal, I don't 
it becomes a lot harder for you to get that deal done if, if you can at all. So you just increase the likelihood that you find a business you want to buy that you can't buy because the investors won't support it. Yeah. Um, and then let's talk a little bit about the uh, just very traditional search model and then maybe compare that with the search fund accelerator model. Totally. So the traditional model is, you know, really popular at Stanford, which is where I came from. And so probably the one I have the most familiarity with uh, and sort of these other ones I've learned more about later in my search process. But the basic structure there is, look, and the model has worked really, really well for a long time. And I think the fact that I'm not doing it, by the way, isn't that I don't think it's a good model. It's just that it, it wasn't necessarily the best fit for me in, in some of my circumstances. But the premise is you're going to put somewhere between 10 and 20 investors around you. And they are, if you're a single searcher, you're probably raising on average $200,000 a year. So $400,000 for your search. There's a $125,000 salary in there plus diligence costs plus expenses for website and other stuff like that. That's kind of the, the average number. And so if you're raising from 10 investors, they're each going to put 40,000 in, maybe some of them are an institution. And so they want a little bit more uh, of your fund, so to speak, because investors write an equity check kind of pro rata to their funding of your search. But basically you bring in a group of investors and they fund you for two years and then you're out looking for a business to acquire. And the cadence I think is you, you know, if you have 10 or 15 investors, there's probably a couple that you end up either out of the gate or over time navigating closer to, and you talk to maybe every other week. And then there's some that maybe you talk to once a quarter or once a month or once every other month. So there's a range. And I think in the relationships that you develop in your cap table, and you're expected to send out at a minimum quarterly updates. I think people sometimes spend more frequent, send more frequent updates. And then, you know, once you find a deal that you're working on, you're talking to all your investors about it. You are going to first go to them to try and raise the capital. And, and generally, I don't know what the stats are, but I don't think every investor always commits to that deal. Like they're not required to, they just have the right to look at it. And I would say, if, you know, if you can't get the deal funded from the investors you put around you, that's generally a bad sign and therefore becomes harder to get the deal funded if, you know, the group you put around you won't do it. Um, so that's kind of the traditional search fund described. And then, you know, when you com compare it to the accelerator model, I would say it's a bit more independent in that you know, you're setting up that those systems and that tech stack on your own. Although there's playbooks emerging in the traditional search fund ecosystem and some of the funds that are great in that ecosystem will bring you for a three-day boot camp and help you get a lot of that stuff set up. But it, it is a little bit more autonomy than the accelerator model where you kind of have one or two or three investors. Here you have 10 or 15, so you have more flexibility. You're going to have investors to have more broader experience than those accelerators who are just a smaller number of investors directly behind you. So that's kind of the differences between the traditional and the accelerator. Yeah, that, that's super helpful for me. Um, so 
I'm going to business school in the fall and yep. I'm really interested in acquiring a business or maybe, maybe starting a business. Um, so search is obviously very interesting to me. Um, how, how might someone like me or, or others interested in this space um, just think about which model might be right for them? Yeah. I mean, personally, I, I think the best way is you really just have to like find, I, I recommend you find a way to do a little bit of each model without pulling the trigger on it. And I mean, I think the first thing you do is you should, you know, set up conversations with recent searchers, whether they've acquired or not, and just be like, what do you think about the model you did? What are the pros or the cons? You know, why did you do what you did, et cetera, et cetera. But I think like for me, I learned the most when I was able to get a little bit of exposure to each model. So, you know, I spent a summer working at a business that had been acquired through the traditional model. I spent a month doing one day a week with a searcher who was doing a traditional model. And so like that type of work, you know, you're not going to get a ton of learning from a month and even a summer internship is not necessarily a ton, but it's, it's a lot better than just, getting phone conversations going, like it's very important to, to have those, but you just learn so much more when you're in the action versus the 30 minute conversations with a bunch of searchers. And I think like the self-funded model, commit to go spend five hours a week on biz by sell and build a website and, you know, get on a few brokers networks locally or whatever, and just start seeing deals in that ecosystem in the sort of 500,000 to a million and a half of cash flow, and be like, are these businesses that I would like to own? And I think it's really easy to think about each model sort of academically or, or in your head, but just like get in front of it and that'll help you much more quickly figure out what's right for you. Yeah. I, that's something I struggle with, like knowing, trying to understand which businesses I would like to own. Yeah. So like you, you look at biz by sell and you're like, all right, here's this like uh, remote security business or here's a local landscaping business. Like, I don't know what are like the frameworks in your head as you're looking at those different options. I think it's honestly for, for me, I, I think it's a lot of times just like gut reaction, you know, think about, think about the seat that you would be in and be like, would you be, excited to okay so you're in landscaping so that's a lot of like boots on the ground business development where you're cold calling customers or you know dropping flyers you know obviously there's there's targeted online marketing as well but like that's a lot of it and then a ton of your work is going to be hiring incentivizing training retaining because it's a you know really labor-oriented business and like does that get you excited and i think the best way to, to just figure that out is to go look at one of those businesses, not just like think about it academically. I mean, mm -hmm. um, I also think that given how competitive search is becoming, you know, trying to focus a little bit on businesses where you have something relatable to that business is a good place to spend your time and also a good way to think about, Hey, could I actually see myself running the business? Because, if you're starting from absolutely no relevant experience, I think it just becomes a little harder to stand out with the seller relative to every other buyer that they're talking to because everybody ends up talking to several buyers. 
Yeah, I, I've talked to a few um, very generous uh, and kind um, SBA lenders who I've just asked about, like, you know, talking to me, what what would they be thinking about as they're considering yep. lending me money? And it's, it seems like they've all kind of said a similar thing, which is at the end of the day, like, do we think you're capable of running the business? And we're mainly basing that on, do you have prior experience? Um, is that is that something you've dealt with? I, I think that like, not a ton. And I think that like, look, if you think the reality of search, like at its core is you're trying to put like none of us real. I mean, some people have real operating experience and that's fantastic. And I think that de-risks a lot of the model, but a lot of searchers have not run or operated a small business like this. So I, I don't think you need to have operating experience and I haven't run into it a ton with lenders. Um, but I think it's more just, do you have something in your story that you can talk to about the seller that like why you're interested in this business, why you think you can help grow it? You know, for me, I was looking at a business a couple months ago, like very much a route based service business that you hear a lot about on small business Twitter. But you know, most of their clients were commercial real estate owners, a specialty plumbing business. And I have a real estate investing background. So what I was talking about with the seller was like, look, I have contacts with some of these property owners and that can be useful for a business development perspective. And so I think that's where just some angle into that business is more important than like true operating experience because not many people have true operating experience. And the core bet, like I was saying earlier and then got sidetracked is you're just taking an energetic, super motivated individual and, and going to, put them in an operating seat and you're betting that they can figure it out. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, that's comforting because I, yeah. I don't have, yeah. uh, I mean, don't have like, like I, I don't have any and I'm like, sure. I have, do I have leadership experience, you know, here and there, you don't get a ton of leadership experience in investment banking and private equity. I've, you know, things in college, whatever, but I'm basically betting on myself that I'm going to bring a bunch of energy. I'm going to, try and take an angle of leadership through doing the dirty work myself and sort of earning my earning respect that way versus trying to come in and claim respect. But I'm just basically betting on myself without any true proof points on running a business because I don't have them. Yeah. Um, I think you said that you interned at a company who had been acquired via like a traditional self, or excuse me, a traditional search. Yep. What did you learn that summer working there? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the most important thing for me was uh, it was just a gut check of like, could I see myself in the seat? And I think it reinforced what everybody kind of already knows in this ecosystem, which is at the end of the day, the CEO seat is really about can you hire and motivate well? you know, like this, there's certainly some things the CEO was working on himself, but like the, the most important stuff we spent time with as interns, there were two of us helping him on was his people plan. There were, you know, two transitions that I saw happen that summer. And one of them was somebody he had hired and wasn't necessarily uh, working out. And he was trying to learn from that and make sure he hired better the next time. And then, you know, there, what on the team right now, like there was, is a software business and their ability to 
get updates on the product was slower than they wanted. And so he was trying to figure out, okay, well, like where between product management and engineering, are we misfiring and what incentives do I maybe need to change? I and mean, like, how do I get two people to work better together? Um, it, it was like all people stuff. You know, there was definitely some work we were doing around new markets we want to go into like consulting MBA type stuff. And the CEO was leading that and you have to be good at that. But the majority of success and he was successful. And I think has continued to be even more successful in his business was he was getting the right people in the right seat. And that's, that's the CEO's job. Like first and foremost, and that can be internally moving people around and it can be hiring people. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's transition to your model. Um, I'd love to know like, why you ultimately went with this model and kind of how it's structured. Yeah. And I would say, um, my model has evolved over time and I'm thankful that it's, that it's been able to evolve. But basically when I, um, started, you know, really, okay. I sort of committed mentally that I was going to do this in spring 2020. And then it was, okay, what's the right way for me to execute this? And I think there were there were two guiding principles for me that drove ultimately where I ended up on my model. And I think like that's the most important thing that people should do is just figure out what are your guiding principles and don't just jump in to whatever model might be closest to you and think that's the only way to do it before figuring out your guiding principles. So for me, it was twofold. One, I really felt like I wanted a really, really close group around me. And I, I wanted it to be a much higher cadence of communication with, with my advisors, mentors, backers, investors, like whatever you want to call it. But the, regardless of which model you're in, you need to have people around you that you can talk to, that can, you can leverage their pattern recognition. And I felt like I wanted it to be a smaller number that it could be as a result, a much tighter relationship. And candidly, I was thinking that these investors know way more than I do about buying a business, about operating a business in this ecosystem. They have way more pattern recognition than I do. I'm kind of starting from scratch. So I thought by having a smaller group around me, perhaps I could get more of their attention and a little bit more mind share than having a, a bigger ecosystem. So that was one motivation for me. And then the second was geography. And I think that's like really important for everybody to, to think about seriously. And I got really good advice from one of my professors who I really look up to. And he basically was like, look, search is anything entrepreneurial. He had sort of done search is a grind. You're going to be way more, up and down in your professional life than you have before. And so your personal life needs to be in a really, really good place because you need that to balance a dip more difficult work environment than you've been used to. And so I took that to heart and basically realized I'd been in California for five years. My brother and his wife live in the Bay area. They're having a kid. I have a serious girlfriend. She's from California. Her sister and brother-in-law live in California. They just had a kid. Like my life is, is out here and I just, wasn't um, going to sort of move it across the country, even for the best business in, in the world. And I think that like, I, I personally, like I spent a summer, a month in Birmingham, I grew up in DC, 
I've got family in Texas. Like I've kind of spent a lot of time in different parts of the country and I, I love different parts of the country and California has its pros and cons, but the reality is like my personal life is here and, and that's a priority for me. And I want to keep that part of my life really stable and in a good place. And so um, that geographic dynamic is real. And if you're going to, to raise a traditional search fund, basically because you, you know, you need to, you, you tend to need to look for bigger businesses and, as a result, you just sort of generally need to have a wider geographic scope. You can definitely do a geographic search with a search with a search fund, but it's more regional. And um, th those are the two guiding principles. And so basically what I actually set out to do was more of the holding company, multiple acquisition structure, and then just sort of pivoted from that a little bit during my search in the fall but what i started with was with okay i have a tight group of investors around me candidly two two people and the idea was hey let's spend the fall exploring industries at a deeper level than maybe the traditional search cadence like hey we're not going to start a lot of out of sourcing out of the gate let's spend a couple months just talking to people doing more almost like hedge fund style research into industries. And the vision was we're going to find a theme or maybe even a level below that, like a really small niche that I'm going to commit to as that's where I want to plant my flag to go buy multiple businesses there over time. And the idea was, you know, have a national search. I'm willing to travel for a year to the first business we buy, but, pretty quickly have an eye to hiring a GM or hiring a CEO so that I can sort of keep my life based out on the West coast and then look to do another acquisition in that ecosystem. And there's one model we didn't talk about is sort of the permanent holding vehicle, multiple acquisition structure, which I actually think has a ton of benefits. And I still think I might end up in that, in that on the long term. but basically what I realized, over the fall was there's no perfect industry or I hadn't found it yet. Maybe I didn't go deep enough to find one and it's very hard to find deals. And so when that's your model, you end up, you know, my model, my, my concept had been multiple acquisitions. When that's your model, you end up betting more on the ability to get multiple acquisitions done versus the ability to succeed as an operator. And I felt like, it's really competitive out there betting on my ability to get multiple deals done. Isn't the bet I want to take. I'd rather bet on my ability to find one deal and then operate that business really well and grow it. And so the vision of like finding one industry just started to feel a little bit like cart before the horse to me, candidly of like, I sort of pivoted back towards just, get in the searching seat and find the business, but just find a business that's going to work for me, which meant geographically more focused sort of West coast States. And I also, during that period, so I didn't intend to self fund. I intended to self fund for a couple months and then we were going to pick our niche, raise capital around it, form sort of a fancy permanent equity vehicle and, and go chase. And I just over a couple months was, draining the savings that I have, not spending a ton of money right now. And was like, I'm comfortable with this. So I'm just going to keep doing that for a little bit. And so 
what my model ultimately evolved to is I still have the same two search fund investors that I talk to on a weekly basis. I actually had dinner with one of them on Sunday. Like they're my advisors, mentors. I plan to be in business with these two individuals for 20 plus years. We just sort of deferred the capital raised. I'm comfortable draining my savings for now. If I find a small business that I want to acquire via the SBA program, they're supportive of that. If I find the two and a half million dollar EBITDA, like traditional search fund deal, they're supportive of that. We probably would have to raise some money from some other investors at that scale. Then my deal just looks like a traditional deal. But uh, basically, I evolved from wanting to sort of design this grand vision of multiple acquisitions that would work for me and my geography to like, wow, it's really hard to get a deal done. Let's just get in the seat and because I have a smaller geographic focus, not raising search capital and allowing myself to do an SBA deal gives me more confidence that I can find a deal for me, basically a smaller deal. Like when you have to be more focused from geography perspective, you need to be willing to look at smaller deals. Chris, it sounds like from what I've heard from a lot of other, either just ETA folks that that's a real that that's a really common theme. So it's like if you really want you know X industry, Y geography, um, Z size, you know you're kind of chasing a pipe dream. And I think you make a great point that if you're geographically focused, you've got to be sort of like industry company size agnostic and and just find sort of like the best deal. Versus if you're going to be like industry specific, then it's almost impossible to be geographic specific. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. Um, and I think a lot of people probably don't figure out until they get into it. Um, it's just a, it's, it's one of the things you kind of butt up against reality because there's just so many people going into the, the search space. Yeah. And look, I mean, I, I had heard that before and I had been like, yeah, I'm fine geographically to have some flexibility. And, and so I think that like, the realization that I was more geographically focused really, again, really didn't hit until I actually started looking at businesses and other ecosystems and candidly was like, am I comfortable asking my partner to like, she's graduating business school the year behind me. So she has a job search going on. Like, am I comfortable asking her to put that job search on hold and focus on a new geography so that I can go run this business. And, and candidly that just like didn't, I really want to support her and her career. And, you know, that just didn't feel like something I wanted to do, which was say like, Hey, we're going to kind of prioritize Chris and the opportunity he's chasing over which, you know, over what she's chasing. And so, but I just like, I, I didn't figure that out until I really got in the seat of starting to look at things, you know, in the fall, I was entertaining things. Like I, you know, really, really like I thought I was more geographically focused, but it didn't really sit in until I got in the seat. And that's just my point to Victor to you earlier of like, start seeing things before you make your decision of what model is for you. Like, yes, talk to people, but more importantly, like see it for yourself. So you mentioned your significant other, uh, obviously being a big part of the decision, um, which I think a lot of folks totally understand. Um, but in terms of, 
I want to use the word partner in a different sense, like a business partner. Did you ever consider having a business partner? I know a lot of searchers say it's a, it's just helpful to have someone sort of bear the burdens with. Um, did, did that ever cross your mind, or it was this something that you really wanted to go at solo? And if so, I'm, I'm curious why. Yeah, not. Um, I didn't spend a ton of time on it. I think part of it was because I knew, you know, once I made the decision in like spring 2020, I sort of knew I was exploring. I didn't, I knew I didn't have the answer yet for what exactly was the model I was going to execute on. And as a result, it felt like hard to ask somebody to partner with me because I didn't really have the plan yet on, Hey, what are we going to partner on? And also I, I think that, um, it just, wasn't the advice I got was like, don't really look for a partner. If there's someone that's you're already close with and a partnership could make sense, like bring it up, you know, candidly a friend or a coworker, but absent that it's just really hard to get the level of confidence in somebody as a partner ahead of time. And the downside of the partnership is like that you two don't work out. And, and that's, I think, more destructive than not having a partner. And so there's just kind of nobody that jumped out to me who I knew enough and was sort of in the same exploratory mindset as I was with search. And as a result, I just, I didn't really chase it much. Chris, so your search kind of evolved from this idea of like, let's do permanent capital, permanent capital type, um, like hold co-structure to let's just buy one business and then go from there. Um, yep. but what, what is the like long-term goal and, and kind of what I'm getting out here is, um, like, well, it's hard for me to know what my ultimate long-term goal is, but, um, I do think that at some point I want to move, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous saying this considering I haven't even made the first step <laughs> towards being an operator, but yeah. at some point move from being an operator to um, not an operator. Um, and like maybe um, having like someone run the day to day. Um, so, so how do you see that? And then like, what's yeah. your ultimate goal? And, and what I would say, and I'll get, you know, this will obviously come up, but I still actually, I think the permanent capital vehicle is the long-term hold model is really, really compelling and is sort of where I want to be. It was more just like, I'm not gonna raise that capital up front until we have the first deal. Um, but I think at its core, that like permanent capital long-term hold structure is just like, hey, instead of having a set of incentives in place when I buy this business, or a set of investors around the business that are likely going to want or force from an incentive perspective, force it to be sold in three to five or six years or whatever. Like let's intend to own this business forever or for 20 years, because whether it's, you know, deferral of taxes or, the ability to recycle cash as you start to create real cash flow out of that business or the ability to deepen relationships in the industry that you're in and then do a second acquisition in three or four years. Like there's just, I think so much more value that gets created over time when you can own a business for, you know, 20 or 30 years or like 
all these crazy family generational business stories, those like look at how much value was created in year 30, not year three. Um, and there's lots of good literature on this. So my plan is the first business that I buy, I want to buy it with a group of investors who are interested in owning it for the long term and are going to structure my equity compensation candidly so that it's incentivized not to be something I want to uh, sort of realize in four or five years. And basically that just means like to get into the details, have my equity tied to multiple of money or sort of whole dollar profit creations versus an IRR, like internal rate of return clock, because just like the math behind the IRR is it gets harder and harder to maintain that, whatever your performance hurdle is, the longer you own the business. And so my goal is, you know, my long-term vision is I want to be a small business owner for my career. And again, to the like, don't put the cart before the horse thing, the first business I buy, if in five years that business is continuing to grow and therefore my job as CEO has probably evolved and I start to look more like the middle market CEO, you know, then like I'm going to keep running that business. And then maybe in five years from there, now all of a sudden it's even bigger and, and my job has evolved even further. Then I think that's a great outcome. Uh, and then the flip side is if you put the right group of investors around you who have just, I think, the willingness to, to think flexibly, maybe at five years you realize like the best return on your time and the best return on candidly their dollars is not for you to be running that business day in, day out, but use the cash flow from that business to, to spin up a new, you know, adjacent business or acquire another business, then like go do that. I just think that calling all these things ahead of the time, ahead of time is, uh, just too hard to do, especially for somebody like me who's never done it before. Um, and so that, that's kind of my plan. I think, I don't remember what podcast it was on, but the, the Chenmark team has sort of become a permanent acquisition vehicle. And I, one thing that's really stuck with me from there thinking was one of the two, uh, I guess their brothers, I think is running a business right now. I just remember him saying like, I'm going to keep running this business until it's no longer, the best use of my time for the holding company. And that's kind of my intention is like, I'm going to buy a business and run it and plan to run it until it doesn't become the best use of my time. And maybe that's in four years or maybe that's in 20 years. But I, I just, I think the more you like align a bunch of things up front, uh, the more likely you are to, to perhaps have committed yourself to something that, or set up incentives that just aren't, aren't right. Like there's so many unknowns once you acquire the business, I'm shying away from predetermining a lot of things five years out. I think that's a good call. I think it's, uh, it's easy to play business as opposed to just like get in there and, and do something and then figure it out once you're there. Yeah. And the reality is like, I, I've never run a business. I've never, you know, this is all so new to me. I'm going to be so far over my skis. Like, let's just focus on the first thing, which is acquiring appropriately transitioning and protecting, you know, first six months you're focused on making sure 
revenue and cash flow doesn't go down and then start growing it and then sort of reevaluate for what, however many, you know, be thinking every six months, evaluating what's the, what's the best use of, of my time. And I think the most important thing to enable that is just putting the right people behind you. So like what I really focus on is the investors I'm working with right now. It's like, Hey, I plan to be in business with you for the next 20 years. I don't know what that looks like, but like we're going to do something together for the next 20 years because that's my career. Like I want this to be my career and finding people who have that flexibility was important to me. Chris, I don't want to, we certainly don't want to soak up too, too much of your time, but we, we haven't hit on your acquisition yet. And I would love to, Victor, unless you've got any other questions, I'd love to maybe transition there. Um, I do have just, Victor, just one, one quick question. Okay. Um, so I'll admit that I'm not even like that familiar with this ter these terms myself, but there's this like EOS framework or the book Traction, which talks yep. about like a visionary uh, personality and then an integrator personality. And it seems like you've kind of recognized in yourself that you want to be an operator. You want to be in there, uh, like in the weeds, it, but you came from an investor, kind of a visionary, um, you know, point of view before. Do you think that, um, do you think that good searchers or, or good, um, business owners have to be more of that integrator operator, uh, at the beginning at least, or do you think that there's room for a visionary to acquire and run a business successfully? I, I actually think that you sort of, uh, have to be both. And, you know, some of the put, not pushback advice I've gotten from one of my investors advisors right now on this business I'm looking at is like, great. You're doing, you know, really good sort of diligence right now on the business today, but when you close on this business, you need to have your plan for what your top priorities are going to be for the first year or even the first couple of years. So I think, I think it's a small business owner, I guess, at least with a growth mindset needs to know where they want the business to go in the next three or four years. And then this is maybe where it's different from like the PE investor, which is like we had our, our, you know, five-year plan and had it in a bunch of fancy slides and underwritten, but then, you need to have that integrated personality to actually go, go pull it off, right. To go execute it. So I think you need to have, and I think that's where a lot of the value gets created in small business acquisitions is actually having the three or five or vision, like however you want to describe it, use the EOS, you know, BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. And then you, because I think sometimes, small business owners aren't thinking that long-term. And so you bring that long-term perspective in, you're willing to invest cash, you know, to go after that long-term growth goal. That's where the value is created alongside your ability to actually execute it. So I think you got to have both, right? You can't just be like, if I just come in and all I do is integrate and put out fires and hire marginally here and there, or spend an extra marketing dollar here or there, I'm not going to grow the business the way I want to. Thanks. Yeah, that, that's super helpful. Um, Benton, you want to you want to kind of transition to um, some some more recent stuff. Yeah. So I would love to give you the floor just to sort of introduce your acquisition as deep or or not so deep as you would like. Um, and then I definitely want to get into your latest tweet. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. So I think you've probably been super busy on this acquisition on the working capital conversation. Super important. Uh, and I found it very relevant as I was going through something a little bit similar. Um, 
So I'll, I'll, I'd love to hear about your acquisition and how you found it, how you're you know looking to, to fund it, um, you know any, any other details that might be you know interesting. Yeah, hundred percent. So it's um, an outsourced bookkeeping and accounting business. So it's you know at its core, they have about 150 customers. You know their job, their goal, their ethos is to manage the books of their small business clients and. Some of their clients that looks like relatively simple, candidly somewhat commoditized work where I think there's more pricing pressure and more competition coming from, you know, to some extent, Silicon Valley startups who are out there making a lot of headlines, but basically helping the local small business reconcile their transactions on a weekly basis. You know, QuickBooks automates some of this, but then they have frontline bookkeepers at the company that, you know, go in and confirm, yes, that was overtime hours booked versus, you know, traditional, traditional hourly salary. So like the basic customer is, Hey, we're maintaining your books for you and making sure you have a clean P and L for your taxes at the end of the year and you get a monthly report. But you know, that's sort of outsourced book bookkeeping in a nutshell where this business is really concentrated is I would say one level up from that. So it's, maintaining the monthly books, but then also putting the controller hat on, not the sort of outsourced CFO hat, which is another part of the market, but rather, hey, we're gonna send you a monthly KPI report that talks to you about your accounts receivable and your accounts payable buildup. And we're gonna sort of help advise you, Mr. or Mrs. Business Owner, on what are some of the financial levers you might try to pull to run this business more efficiently or generate more cash. So it's a combination of outsourced bookkeeping, which is like, you know, think about that as the foot in the door. That's the, the basic work that they're doing, but they're trying to differentiate themselves and add a little bit more value and therefore be a little bit less commoditized by actually giving controller level, I would say advice to their small business clients. And so it's a couple million dollars for revenue, um, about a million dollars of, of cash flow and like I said, 150 clients or so, it's about 20 employees. The team is fully remote and has been since before COVID and, and most of this industry is remote. And the, like I guess story on how I found the businesses and the seller is proprietary outreach. And I, sometimes I've been skeptical on that paying off because it feels like a lot of times you're finding companies and building lists and reaching out to sellers and you never get anything back. But you know, this person I, I reached out to in the fall, actually, we had a couple of conversations then he wasn't quite ready to sell, but also yet I wasn't really ready to, to buy yet. Candidly a business at that, at that, at this scale, I was thinking more, I was going to go buy, you know, 50 employee business with a couple million dollars of cash flow, And then, we talked again in January and I was actually giving him some sort of business development advice. And he actually had a, an event in his family happen that sort of triggered his desire to spend more time with his family. And so he reached back out to me and in, in about March, um, we'd gotten some unsolicited bids from other potential buyers and he reached back out to me and was like, Hey Chris, I know you're in this M&A world. What do you think about these bids? And I said, I gave him my reaction, but also said, Hey, let's have a conversation about you know, me buying this business because now I was sort of more excited about a business at his scale. And we've been working on the transactions since then. 
how does your offer as a searcher compare to what private equity firms might be able to offer him? Yeah. And he got, um, I would say it's, I, sorry, I don't the, know if you said they were private equity firms. No. Yeah. So one, okay. one is sort of like a, a family office backed. The other one is a little bit more of a venture backed business, but yeah, more institutional buyers. Um, I would say what I found is it is at the low, the low range of what he thinks his business and worth is worth and what brokers are telling me his business is worth and what brokers are telling him his business is worth. So it's not like I'm getting a steal. I don't think you often find sellers that are going to like, sell it to you for 20% less the average market multiple. I think he's willing to sell it to me at maybe 10 to 15% less what a theoretical higher bidder might pay. Um, but honestly, I'm paying a pretty full valuation for it. And I think if you have a longer term mindset, that can be okay. Like if you own the business for 10 or 20 years, as long as you support the debt you put on it, you're trying to grow it so much that paying an extra 15% is okay. Um, but in terms of how it compares, so yeah, I would say from a, like a whole dollars number, it's in line with the lower end of some of the, some of the bids that he's gotten and, you know, where I sort of quote unquote compete is more on, you know, he sees me as a good owner for the, for the next stage. He's not selling it into a larger entity that's already in the ecosystem and therefore he thinks, I'm going to be a better solution for his existing employees, which he really cares about. And, you know, he views it as sort of 2.0 version of his business and is really excited about, and this is like often the sort of the traditional thing that plays out in search is excited about selling it to a younger person. That's going to try and grow it for the next 10 years, just like he did for the last 10. And, you know, I'm going to give some equity to his top, leaders and he thinks that's really exciting so it's sort of hey i'm a really good fit for your team is is really where I, I get to stand out relative to some of the other other bidders yeah they they, they were and, and that's pretty standard in uh the outsourced accounting i mean not not every business but at the end of the day basically what they're doing right is you're a small business you have credit card systems, you have payroll, you have uh, your point of sale, all these technology, you know, these pieces in your tech stack, they all talk to QuickBooks. And then your bookkeeper is somebody who basically has login access to a lot of those and is confirming things are in the right place or recategorizing things as quick in QuickBooks as needed. So you don't, it, it works really well as a remote business. They're domestic and that's, you know, definitely a decision a CEO has to make over time because there's a lot of outsourcing, international outsourcing going on in the industry. A lot of people are moving the basic frontline bookkeeping work to the Philippines in particular. And my goal for now is, you know, to keep everything U.S. based. And I think that's pretty critical to the, to the long term here, which is if our bet as a, to be a little bit differentiated is that we're going to give you sort of controller level advice and higher touch point bookkeeping service, having that team in the US, I think is really important. Right, yeah, sort of a more higher quality experience versus a commoditized type of um, uh, mechanical Turk type of, of experience, yeah. Now, are the bookkeepers the ones giving the the potential, you know, 
APAR sort of working capital advice, or would that be more of like some of the C-suite level folks? Um, you know, who, who are these people? Are they like CPAs that are doing the books or are they, you know, not so much CPAs and how does that work? It's a mix. Yeah. So the org structure is, there's basically 15, what I would call frontline bookkeepers. And then there's three uh, sort of mid-level managers who each manage a team. Think of them as a team lead, right? So each manage a team of four to five bookkeepers. And for the most basic customers, the relationship often sits with a frontline bookkeeper. And for, you know, the higher dollar per week, this business gets weekly revenue. For the higher dollar per week customers where there's higher touch service, that customer relationship sits at the team lead level. And in terms of the employees, it's a mix. You know, some of the individuals came from finance teams at organizations. Some are former CPAs coming from, there's one employee here from the big four. So you have a mix. Um, you know, what you want in the frontline bookkeeper is basically someone that's got a lot of transaction experience. I don't mean M&A transactions, but, you know, payment transaction experience. So they've done a lot of bookkeeping work candidly. And then the team leads is somebody who's got a bit more of that advisory mindset. So more likely to be a, you know, a CPA and not sort of your local CPA who does taxes on a yearly basis, but um, sort of the financial thought partner. Gotcha. And so, you know, in terms of the process of closing the business, it sounded like from your tweet a couple of weeks ago that you guys were getting down to the skinny and talking about working capital. Tell the audience sort of how that worked out and where you are now with the business and the, with the acquisition. Yeah. And so, so this, the, the process here has been interesting in that we are kind of negotiating. A lot of times you rush to LOI, get something under LOI and then deal with some of these tougher negotiations like working capital, like reps and warranties in the PSA, which is around, uh, you know, how much can you go after the seller if he or she ends up sort of lying to you post-transaction close. But we're negotiating a lot of those trickier items up front and I'm doing a lot of my diligence now. Like technically we haven't signed an LOI, but I have access to his internal reporting dashboards. I see his weekly KPI dashboard on like seller um, on, on new sales. So like we haven't signed an LOI yet, but it feels like we're past that in, in a lot of ways. And that's just because he wants full confidence once, once the LOI is signed that as much confidence as he can have that the business is going to close because he wants to introduce me to his top line management team. And he doesn't want to kind of get mud on his face if he does that. And then the deal blows up. So that's the context of where we are on the deal. I'd say on the working capital negotiation, um, that was a good lesson for me. And just like be really communicative upfront because, and, and sort of like, don't like, if you want to have a conversation about something, just have the conversation. Don't necessarily like plant the seed and, and then, come back to it. And so what I had done in working capital was I said, Hey, like we need to have an understanding of what your working capital average is sort of, that's what we're going to put in the transaction documents as sort of what's called the peg or kind of the number that is when I buy the business, I expect there to be X working capital in the business. And then if there's more, when I buy it because of where your AP or your AR ended, then I will 
you know, pay you a little bit more because I inherited too much working capital. If there's too little, I get to hold back some of the purchase price because I expected to buy the business with X working capital and came with less than that. The lesson I, I learned was sort of, I introduced that concept just like I introduced it to you all. And he was just like, okay, well, I need to know what that number is because if it's, you know, if it's a small number, that's fine. But if it's a big number that changes my proceeds and like, then this deal becomes more attractive with you. And I think that um, I sort of planted it as a tougher conversation than it actually was because once I explained to him what the numbers were that I was thinking about, how I calculated those, he was like, yep, that makes total sense, all good. And so. Um, and how, how were you actually calculating? Were you calculating the working capital like X cash? Yeah, so traditionally in, uh, small business and often just generally in private equity transactions, it's like a debt-free cash-free acquisition. So any debt that he or she may have on the business as a seller should be gone when I acquire the business, but also they're not going to leave any cash in the business. So the, the working capital really comes down to inventory, accounts payable, accounts receivable, other non-cash working capital items that you may have. And in a business like this, there's no inventory and, and they get paid weekly. So there's very little accounts receivables or accounts payables. So it, it really um, wasn't as much of an issue as I think I, I, I sort of teed it up to be once we got into the nitty gritty. Are you bringing any operating cash to the table day one? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'm going to put in uh, two months of operating expenses just to be conservative. This business is profitable on a monthly basis and they get paid weekly from their 90% of the revenue is weekly recurring revenue coming from their bookkeeping clients. So, you know, his point was there shouldn't be much working capital because we start from zero and we build up cash every single week. And, uh, but I just want to put cash on the balance sheet day one to have a cushion. That's smart as a percentage of like working capital, I guess, since it's, you guys collect cash pretty quickly, it's a pretty significant multiple of working capital. Am I guessing that right? The cash that, out, right? the cash that yes. I put on the balance sheet. Yeah, yes. for sure. I mean, his working capital balance is like <clears throat> 2% of revenue. Uh, okay. So it's a pretty tight cash conversion point, point of time. Yeah. Yeah. There, okay. There's, and that's, you know, that's one thing. Once you see like seeing lots of businesses helps you inform your excitement about a deal or not. And I'm like, well, this is a higher multiple than I might pay for a more working capital intensive business, but the cash conversion is so much more attractive and there's so much less risk that I miss a debt payment in the first few months because of a big working capital issue that like that gets me more excited about this business despite a higher valuation, let's say. Right. Makes sense. Like cash is super important. And I think liquidity is king. Yeah, especially when you're going to put a bunch of SBA debt service on your acquisition, you have to make sure you've got cash to make those payments, especially in the first the first year or two. Getting a little bit more uh, philosophical here, um, given yep. that we're coming up on time, um, and I know you and I have talked about this before a little bit, but I think it'll be interesting for and insightful for our listeners um, who maybe are contemplating this path. What, what are some of the hardest parts of the search process? And then uh, what have been some of the most rewarding aspects? I think the hardest part for sure is not knowing if you're doing a good job. 
you know, like you really don't know if you've done a good job until five years out because did you buy a business and did you buy a good business? You know, the core that everybody talks about in search is like, can I buy a good business and a growing industry at a reasonable valuation? And you can be pretty confident about those things when you pull the trigger, but that's like really only going to prove out once you're in the weeds of the business for a couple of years. But, you know, on a, on a much more immediate level, it's just like, there are many ways to search. I mean, there are many models and there are also many ways to search within that and, you know, proprietary broker, high volume, low volume outreach and investors have different perspectives, but you can probably find people. I mean, there's a few rules of thumb, but for the most part, there's lots of different ways to, to be successful. And lots of people have been successful with different searching philosophies. And as a result, it's really hard to know, like, am I spending my time the right way or not? Like I know whether or not I'm wasting time on a given day, that's pretty easy to figure out. But, uh, you know, was the time like, is it high ROI time? And just not knowing that is, is tough. And, but part of search is getting more comfortable with uncertainty and you have to be comfortable with uncertainty when you're CEO for sure. So it's, I think it's actually good that I'm, uh, building up comfort with the hardest part of search. And then to the most rewarding part, for sure, it has been, the two deals I've worked most seriously on, you know, I've been able to envision myself in the seat and the energy that I've gotten from that in terms of like, what would it be like to run this business day one? It's become so much clearer to me that I really want to be doing this because that's just so exciting to me uh, and scary. But that like, if, it, if it's not a little bit of both, then you're sort of not, I think, working on the right stuff. So uh, that's, that's my perspective on that. I love it. Um, before we get to our very final questions, is there anything that you're working on right now? Um, or, you know, looking for audience help with or, or anything you want to say to the audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly because your audience, some of it may be in small business ownership, to the extent I'm, I'm always right now, because I'm working on an outsourced accounting business that serves small business customers, people who have thought about outsourcing their bookkeeping and accounting work, people who have done it. Uh, basically anyone who wants to do a customer interview, like, let me know. I'd love to talk to you about your experience. Um, you know, if this deal doesn't go through, then I'm going to be back in the game of looking for a business to acquire. So to the extent anybody has the businesses on the broader West coast, I'm trying to keep my life <clears throat> grounded in Northern California, but it doesn't have to be a San Francisco business. It can be you know something in Arizona or Nevada or Utah that I can travel to and and you know come back on the weekends type thing. Uh, let me know because I'm looking to acquire a business. So I'd say that's th those are the things that uh, would be most helpful. For sure. Well, we are hopeful with you that this one goes through, um, and maybe some of our yep. audience members can reach out and do a customer interview or something like that. Yeah. And I would say also on Benton, one thing I've been thinking about too is on the small real estate ownership side as well. I think that could be an interesting vertical for us to go down, which is manage the books for small real estate owners. And then as they look at selling, maybe we end up becoming their preferred buyer. So, uh, you know, I'd love to have that conversation with some small real estate owners as well. I think that could apply to many of the clients that you are, you sit in a very interesting position because you're managing their books. So it's obviously private information, but you know, if you're a good owner and operator and a good guy and they build a relationship with you, who knows?
not just real estate wise. No, I think that's definitely part of the, like, you know, I have to figure out how do you actually do that and who's going to run the business. If it's, I can't run three businesses at one time, whatever, but that's definitely an interesting way to ultimately be sourcing transactions, which is the hardest thing to do in the small business ecosystem. All right, Chris. Well, final questions for you that we ask all of our guests. Yep. What does doing business the right way mean to you? I think, I mean, I thought about this question just from the perspective as like a, hopefully a future owner. And, and so what would doing the business the right way for me be? And I think most importantly, it was and is being willing to and actually spending a little bit of time doing every job in the business or even more specifically, like doing the ground level work in the business into this acquisition. Like I want to take on some bookkeeping work. It's not going to be hundred percent of my time, but I think especially somebody in my position who's coming in with like a bunch of fancy things on the resume that are going to create skepticism, which they should from people in the business. They're going to be, who is this person coming in? What do they think they know about running a business of this scale? And, and I need to prove myself to my team, not by coming in and saying, I'm the leader, listen to me, but rather like building credibility you know, I've seen people on Twitter talk about if you buy a route-based service business, like get in the truck, ride along, be like, you know, Rich has a, Rich Jordan has a great story about like helping some plumber get to his Friday afternoon vacation that he had scheduled. And uh, I really want to take on that, that type of work as a leader out of the gate. And I think finding a way to continue to do that as your business scales is really important to build credibility all the way down to the front line of your business. And that's how you build the credibility you get, you need to ultimately motivate and lead, which is your job as an owner. So that, I mean, there's a lot of things that you want to do the right way, but I think, uh, getting the, doing the frontline work yourself to build credibility is really important. Yeah. I love that. The, uh, it's, it's almost like the, the ultimate quality of your work is, is only as good as the quality of, you know, the smallest thing that you're doing every day. Yep. Yep. Are there any personal habits that you're dedicated to that keep you physically or mentally fit or, or just that you enjoy doing as a way to maybe unwind? Yeah. So I think, um, I try to, I'm not perfect about it, but I do try to work out in the mornings before work and I try not to be using my phone during that. And so that's a, usually a 45 minute process. And it just, I find that on the days I get that done, I have much more energy during the day and have higher ability to work late if I need to. So that's probably, I have that and I, I try to stretch at nights before I go to bed. Um, and that's a good time to unwind too with like just nothing else except, you know, 10 minutes or so of that. And then I, in terms of like things that keep me focused outside of work, I play, I, I grew up playing golf. I played competitively at different parts of my life and I, candidly still play a couple times a month and it's playing for fun, but it's also playing with an eye towards getting better. And I still find tournaments here and there to play in. And I think having a place where you can focus outside of work is really, really healthy to allow you to continue to have focus for a long time in work. So I think it's like, for me, it, the hobby is golf, but I think for anybody it's have a hobby or a passion that you're really fired up about and that you can actually set goals in and like work towards. And maybe that's, you know, art, or maybe it's ultra marathons, like whatever it might be. But I think uh, having something that you can 
spend time on and dedicate mental energy to outside of work actually pays dividends inside of work. Totally. All right. What business hasn't been started yet, but needs to be? Another way of asking this would be, if you could snap your fingers and solve one pain point, what would it be? Yeah, I, I took kind of a more comical approach to this one, um, but that's honestly something, I don't know if it's a huge market from a dollar's perspective, but I um, have just seen it firsthand as somebody who's moved twice in the last year and where I live, the, there's like strict requirements on what you can be doing with boxes uh, in terms of where to throw them out, what size they need to be. So I, me and my roommate actually spent a lot of time breaking down boxes and cutting them up into the right size and then tying them together so that the recycling organization will pick them up when you put them on the street. So I think there's a little like sweaty startup college kid business, uh, whether it's at local apartment buildings or if you live in an area where there's a lot of wealthy people ordering a lot of stuff on Amazon, like come break down their boxes for them. Maybe there's some interesting like recycling you can do as part of that, but uh, even, you know, this morning I got up early to drive, to drop a bunch of boxes and be first in line at the local recycling plant. And like, you know, that's something that a little industrious high school kid could probably do in the neighborhood. It's like modern snow shoveling. Yeah, there's definitely something there because, uh, you are the third person that we've asked this question to in the last three months who said the exact same thing. Oh, really, man. Well, I, yeah. I was hoping I was going to be more original than that, but I guess well, one, so. one was Kelsey Larich, uh, who we talked about this and then Benton's idea was converting those boxes to furniture. Um, and then I yep. can't remember who else said it, but, uh, that's hilarious. I mean, I, I might need to dig into that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're, you know, you depending on what suburb you live in, if you're at the high school kid post something at the grocery store and you might get 15 bucks an hour for it. Yeah. All right, man. Well, um, this has been super helpful. I'm really glad that you were willing to come onto the show. I think you shared a lot of knowledge here. Super pumped about following along as you hopefully close on this business and uh, look forward to staying in touch after that. Yeah, appreciate it, Chris. This was a blast. Well, I hope I, uh, I, hope I lived up to the expectations of some of your other, other buyers or other guests and maybe once I get out of the buyer seat and get onto the operator seat, I can come back with uh, a, a lot more confidence than some of the other guests. So I, I appreciate the time. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.